How many of you listeners have heard of Andrew Carnegie? Steel tycoon, beloved philanthropist, that name on all those libraries and museums? Well, let's start with this. The name is actually pronounced Carnegie, not Carnegie or Carnegie, which is how it's usually seen and heard. And if you know anything about the man himself, you probably know he believed in using his vast wealth for the betterment of mankind. He hoped to usher in nothing less than world peace. And his chosen tool to bring all the world's people together? Diplomacy through dinosaur discovery. I'm Emery Colcats. Welcome to the Season 2 finale of Museum of Natural Mystery. Over the last couple of episodes, I've spent a lot of time discussing how American dinosaurs impacted the world's perception of paleontology. America wanted to show off discoveries like the Tyrannosaurus Rex as an act of bravado, a message that America was the toughest, and it had the biggest, most terrible lizards to prove it. While Andrew Carnegie could never resist a little flaunting of his own, I thought it would be nice to go out on a story about what happens when the posturing is largely put aside in the interest of shared knowledge. But before we jump into the tale of Carnegie's dinosaur, let's look at Carnegie himself. Andrew Carnegie was born in 1835 in Dunfermline, Scotland, a town famous for its beautiful linens. And like many residents, Carnegie's father was a weaver. Unfortunately, the rising tide of steam-powered industrial looms rendered handmade fabrics obsolete. What little work could be found was often dangerous, exhausting, and offered criminally low pay. By 1848, the Carnegies decided the situation had become untenable, so they set sail for America. But things were hardly better stateside. They'd sold everything they owned just to book passage across the Atlantic, and by the time they settled just outside Pittsburgh, they had less than nothing. As a child, Andrew Carnegie took up work in a cotton factory to help keep the family afloat, bringing in a dollar twenty per week. When he wasn't working tirelessly to contribute his meager earnings to his family's well-being, he spent his time reading. Public libraries were rare in those days, and on weekends, a neighbor by the name of Colonel James Anderson opened his private book collection to local youths. Anderson's generosity proved an invaluable resource to Carnegie, who used those books to educate himself. 
the newfound book smarts landed teenage Carnegie a job with the Pennsylvania Railroad, and he eventually caught quite a break when he decided to invest in sleeper cars for train passengers. The invention not only revolutionized train travel, but netted him an extra $5,000 a year. Carnegie had an intuition for lucrative opportunities, later starting companies that upgraded wooden bridges to longer-lasting iron and ran telegraph wires along rail lines. But Carnegie really struck gold in 1872. He invested all of his money, plus a loan on top of that, to construct America's first ever steel plant in Pittsburgh, which incidentally is how Pittsburgh earned the nickname Steeltown. Carnegie Steel Corporation would become the largest steel manufacturing company in the world, and by the 1900s, Carnegie had amassed a fortune of $380 million, which sounds impressive on its own, but when converted to modern dollars, is actually more like $309 billion. But for all the money he was raking in, he had zero intention of keeping it for himself. Carnegie had a mantra. The man who dies rich dies in disgrace. In an article titled The Gospel of Wealth, he argued that the wealthy had a societal obligation to live not extravagantly but modestly, and to use their resources to promote the welfare of the poor. As an immigrant with no formal education who learned how to navigate America through books, Carnegie was adamant that if everyone just had access to books, anyone could rise to the highest peaks of success. Around 1870, Carnegie began funding the creation of public libraries, first in his native Scotland, then the United States, and finally across Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. The project ultimately resulted in 2,509 new libraries at a cost of $55 million of his fortune, about $45 billion today earning him the title, the patron saint of libraries. But setting his altruism aside for a moment, Carnegie lived by a complicated code. Though he believed in the importance of giving and wrote at length about the need for workers' rights, he was also a big subscriber to the philosophy of social Darwinism, and incorporated survival of the fittest arguments into his business practices. He held a monopoly on the steel industry, and he believed that an important element of keeping steel cheap was to slash labor wages and keep long hours. In spite of his upbringing and his support for lifting up the lower classes, Carnegie was incapable of identifying the contradiction in his business and philanthropic values, until it bit him in the ass. In 1892, Carnegie was set to negotiate a new contract with the union at his steel plant in Homestead, Pennsylvania. Several workers had been maimed by dangerous equipment. The crew was rightly outraged by the dismal pay and disregard for their safety, and 
had gone on strike. Just before the meeting, Carnegie left on a trip to Great Britain, delegating negotiations to business partner Henry Clay Frick. Carnegie advised Frick to bring the issue to a close, stating that he supported whatever action Frick decided to take. Frick interpreted this as a green light from the boss to break the union. Frick closed the plant, erected fences with rifle stations around the perimeter, hired a private police force, and then offered the strikers' jobs to poor black workers who were desperate enough to take the work without any union protections. The outcome was volcanic. A 150-day conflict resulting in violence between the strikers and the guards, violence against the families of the black workers, and deaths on all sides. The homestead strike would go down as one of the most gruesome events in labor rights history. For the rest of his days, Carnegie regretted leaving Frick in charge. Often he would lament that if he'd been there, everything would have turned out differently. The public at large, however, found this hard to swallow, calling out his absence as a handy way to wash his hands of blame. An editorial in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch read, 10,000 Carnegie Public Libraries would not compensate the country for the direct and indirect evils resulting from the homestead lockout. Say what you will of Frick, he is a brave man. Say what you will of Carnegie, he is a coward. And gods and men hate cowards. Labeled as a hypocrite, his philanthropic idealism in tatters, Carnegie took the justifiable criticism to heart and retired from business. He would make amends by putting his money where his mouth was. All of it. He was going to give away every single dollar before he died. And when that day came, he resolved he would have left the world a better place. He began selling off all of his enterprises, the largest, of course, being Carnegie Steel, which eventually went to J.P. Morgan for the equivalent of $14 billion today. With the earnings, he funded churches, schools, and nonprofit organizations. Eventually, his focus shifted towards scientific and cultural endeavors, like the Carnegie Institute in Pittsburgh, which featured its own natural history museum. And that's when Carnegie was hit with a bolt of inspiration for just how to bring the whole world closer together. In December 1898, the now silver-haired Carnegie was flipping through the New York Journal when he came across the headline, Most Colossal Animal Ever on Earth Just Found Out West. The article featured an illustration of a sauropod, reared up on its hind legs, leaning against a skyscraper, with the caption, quote, how the Brontosaurus Giganteus would look if it were alive and should try to peep into the 11th story of the New York Life Building, unquote. 
The article recapped a dinosaur discovery in Wyoming, claiming that Brontosaurus had a stomach large enough to hold three elephants, that its roar could be heard ten miles away, and that it produced thunder when it walked. This was nonsense, of course, but it got the job done. Carnegie was hooked. At the time, the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh was still a work in progress. It had some cool exhibits lined up, including an Irish elk and a mammoth, but Carnegie knew that even the largest mammals paled in comparison to dinosaurs. He'd actually been pestering O.C. Marsh, who, by the way, is now credited with being the original discoverer of the brontosaurus, to slide him a thunder lizard or two for quite some time. But as we know from the Bone Wars, O.C. Marsh and E.D. Cope were engaged in mutually assured destruction that was about to claim both their lives. This brontosaurus was the biggest of the big boys, though, and Carnegie's intuition for good investments was blaring like a klaxon. The museum had to have it. He ripped the article out of the journal, scrawled a note in the margins reading, My lord, can't you buy this for Pittsburgh? Try. The Wyoming State University isn't rich. Get an offer. Hurry. Signed, A.C. End quote. And mailed it to his museum director, William Holland. To show he was serious, he included a check for $10,000. Holland went right to the source, seeking out William Reed, the museum collector who had uncovered the brontosaurus from the article. Comically, the wary Reed told Holland that yes, the specimen was for sale, but no, brontosaurus couldn't fit three elephants in its stomach, and it didn't have literal thunder thighs either. Apparently, the exaggerated article was misleading potential buyers, and Reed was saving Holland time in case reality swayed him from making a purchase. It didn't, but the transaction turned out to be kind of a letdown in a different way. Carnegie was hoping for a skeleton, but this whole to-do about Brontosaurus, Holland learned, was based on a single fossil. Reed had discovered an enormous eight-foot-long thigh bone, but it was still just the one. Holland collected the colossal fossil nonetheless, and signed Reed to a year's contract with the museum on the promise that if Reed found anything more, he'd come right to Carnegie. Holland knew the giant thigh wasn't going to cut it. In 1899, he used Carnegie's funding to poach two of the top fossil hunters of the time, J.L. Wortman and Arthur Coggeshall, from the American Museum of Natural History in New York. He needed their help to find something more substantial, so the two opted to search the Morrison Formation, a location near the site of Reed's original find and home to countless important dinosaur discoveries. On the morning of July 4th, 1899, the two paleontologists stumbled upon a gigantic toe bone embedded in the earth. They quickly got to excavating, and by mid-afternoon, they were still digging up bones. Whatever this beast was, it was massive. The find wasn't a brontosaurus, but it was the next best thing. Two diplodocuses, 
One, the most well-preserved and complete skeleton ever found, and then a second, less intact skeleton. The Diplodocus wasn't exactly a new dinosaur. It had been discovered years before, also by O.C. Marsh, who gave it a lame-ass name meaning double beam after its chevron bones, in case you were wondering what that silly name even stands for. However, after a lengthy review by recruited paleontologist John Bell Hatcher, this specimen was determined to have enough distinguishing features to be a variant species. He dubbed the creature Diplodocus carnegii and produced an illustrated reconstruction of the humongous animal, estimating it to be more than 90 feet in length. Andrew Carnegie was over the moon. If he had any residual disappointment over his team's failure to bring back the larger brontosaurus, having a species named after him seemed to have curbed it. Due to the July 4th discovery, Kagashal cheekily called their Diplodocus the Star-Spangled Dinosaur, and that was a tagline the Carnegie Museum could run with. In an interview with the Pittsburgh Dispatch, William Holland claimed that they had become the possessors of one of the largest and possibly the most perfect skeletons hitherto found of a colossal dinosaur belonging to the genus Diplodocus, a rare bird indeed, some of which no museum in Europe possesses, and of which only fragments exist in American collections. Holland was a bit extra in his hype, but he wasn't wrong. The better-preserved Diplodocus had yielded a right femur, a near-complete pelvis, and a set of 41 unbroken vertebrae. Combined with fossils from the second skeleton and some borrowed bits from other specimens, they had enough to display a whole dinosaur. Except they didn't have the space. I mentioned earlier that the Carnegie Museum was a work in progress, and it wasn't just because they were lacking in exhibits. Carnegie may have jumped the gun a little when he asked for the biggest dinosaur around, because the museum literally had not built anywhere to put it once they had it. By 1902, their Diplodocus was still in storage. To make matters worse, the American Museum of Natural History Miffed both by Holland's braggadocious comments and also by his stealing their guise, had managed to find a brontosaurus skeleton in the time it was taking the Carnegie Museum to find a spot for their Diplodocus. The AMNH had actual exhibit halls, so they set to work assembling their brontosaurus, intent on leaving Holland in the dust. Andrew Carnegie was a clever guy though, and while his aspirations were much loftier than winning a squabble between museums, he didn't lack for competitive spirit. Later that year, while spending some time at the castle he owned in Skibo, Scotland, he received a visit from King Edward VII of England. Carnegie had recently had Hatcher's Diplodocus illustration converted into a poster for his wall, and the king spotted it while touring Carnegie's home. According to William Holland, who recounted the story years later, the exchange went something like this. I say, Carnegie, what in the world is this? 
the hugest quadruped that ever walked the earth, and a namesake of mine. Uh, oh, my. Yes, I see. Very good. Uh, Carnegie, we must have one for our museum. And Carnegie answered, well, of course. The response caught the world off guard. Up until that point, the usual routine after a dinosaur discovery had been to taunt anyone who didn't have it and start beef, which happened to be the very behavior Holland and the American Museum of Natural History were engaged in at that moment. But given his philanthropic nature, it really shouldn't have been a surprise when Carnegie tossed their entire conflict out the window by offering his own giant sauropod to the AMNH's greatest transatlantic rival. When asked why he'd done it, he simply reiterated that wealth should be used for the long-term betterment of man, and that included a wealth of knowledge. Granted, it didn't hurt that when the AMNH did unveil their brontosaurus ahead of the Carnegie Museum, the announcement was lost in the buzz surrounding the pond-hopping Diplodocus, which the British had nicknamed Dippy. But saying they'd give the British Museum of Natural History a sauropod was one thing. Actually delivering on that promise was a whole different animal. Literally, it wasn't as though the Carnegie Museum had another near-complete Diplodocus skeleton lying around. They hardly had space for the one, let alone two, and they weren't about to go dig up another. Holland, ever the problem solver, proposed that they unpack all those bones and make the king some exact replicas out of plaster casting. Wharton and Coggeshall were tasked not only with replicating the fossils they had, but with casting fossils from specimens in other museums to supplement the bones they didn't have. And 18 months later, Dippy the Diplodocus was on its way to London. Dippy's unveiling in 1905 was the celebration of the year. London headlines read, Welcome, Colossal Stranger. The British Museum's Reptile Hall was packed with all manner of social elites, wearing black tie and top hats or elaborate dresses and intricate bonnets. Outside, the public clamored for a look at the largest dinosaur ever to grace England. But dinosaurs have always been something of a point of national pride, and not everyone was quite so thrilled to receive Carnegie's gift. The British Natural History Museum was the cradle of paleontology, so it needled at British Museum Director Ray E. Lancaster that this star-spangled invader could draw larger crowds than his own exhibits had seen in quite some time. Lancaster opened the ceremony by advising Carnegie that their paleontology wing had quite enough specimens of its own, thank you, which was in fact the very reason the crowd had to be moved to the Gallery of Reptiles. He then went on to explain that Great Britain had recently found its own large dinosaur comparable in size to Diplodocus, and that really Diplodocus was just an improved and enlarged form of an English creature. He called 
out the Diplodocus and New Money Upstart Carnegie as metaphors for America and all its asinine brashness on the global stage. America and its sauropods and Tyrannosaurus were all bark, he argued, a bit player country that thought itself important just because it found something neat for show and tell. He continued, All the great progress that has been made in the American Republic has been founded upon ideas which have germinated under regents, which have been, I should say, really conceived in England, eh? Eh? <laughs> eh? What, I should say? After his mic drop, an alarming portion of the crowd went wild. Carnegie hadn't anticipated that he'd be out here attending his own roast, but he responded with the same coolness he'd used to dispatch the American Museum of Natural History. Stepping onto the stage, the 5'3", giant bowtie-wearing Andrew Carnegie sidestepped Lancaster's jabs altogether. He reminded the crowd that he was an immigrant from Great Britain, a product of the new and old worlds, just as America was. But even if America was evolving into something new and exciting, there was no reason to forget who the OG was. He wanted to pay respect by giving back what he considered to be the most magnificent animal that ever had walked the earth. He thanked the king for accepting the offering and for being willing to advance the interests of his country from the peace of nations to the acquisitions of the British Natural History Museum. From the youngest of all our museums on the other side, two years. For all those in America may be justly considered, in one sense, your offspring. We have followed you. An alliance for peace seems to have been affected, jointly waving a new tie, another link binding in closer embrace the mother and the child lands. The crowd was cheering before Carnegie even finished talking. He closed out by thanking the king one last time before calling the opportunity to present Dippy one of the most pleasing acts of his life. Dippy has been a treasured part of the British Museum's history ever since, beloved by generations. It remained there until a recent two-year campaign took Dippy on a tour of Britain. The tour will last until 2020, but you can catch Dippy on Twitter to find out where it'll be next at at Dippy on Tour, or if you're stateside, you can follow Dippy's American counterpart at at Dippy underscore the underscore dino. This is what Andrew Carnegie had been after from the moment he saw the New York Journal article. Dippy didn't just bring America and England closer together. Dignitaries from all over the world had attended the London ceremony, and they wanted Dippies of their own. Soon, Wharton and Coggeshall were making cast after cast, filling orders for Berlin Paris, Vienna, Bologna, St. Petersburg, Madrid, and Buenos Aires. At every stop, 
The Diplodocus attracted world leaders like Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, Emperor Franz Josef of Austria, and Grand Duke Vladimir Alexandrovich of Russia. These titans among men came together, united by their curiosity over a titan among beasts. And for a time, Andrew Carnegie thought dinosaurs might truly be the common ground that could encourage further mediation and improve international relations. Carnegie was a staunch pacifist, famous for having called war the foulest blow upon our civilization. So you can imagine his disappointment when the very same men he'd gifted with his dinosaur began talking a deadly game just a few years later. As Europe spiraled into chaos in 1914, Carnegie was so desperate to avoid an armed conflict that he actually attempted to pay the German Kaiser Wilhelm to cease hostilities. But the Great War would not be denied. One grim anecdote from late in the war mentions that soldiers from different nations speaking different languages all knew the word Diplodocus, and often used it as a way to describe the gigantic, lumbering tanks across language barriers. It was a knife in the heart for Andrew Carnegie, and his health declined rapidly in the following years. He died in August 1919, just two months after the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. It's arguable that Carnegie's shock at the scale of World War I's bloodshed took him before his time, leaving much of his work unfinished. Upon his death, Carnegie had managed to distribute $350 million towards educational, scientific, and cultural causes, but he still had about $30 million left to give. His wife Louise and his foundation picked up where he left off, putting the money towards organizations that would go on to do good work like discovering insulin, disarming nuclear weapons, and helping to create PBS and Sesame Street. But there's no doubt that for all these achievements, Carnegie's Diplodocus left the most indelible mark on the world. In 1929, Louise Carnegie approved the creation of a new Diplodocus cast to be sent to Mexico City, and in 1932, the Carnegie Museum made another that was traded to Munich in exchange for a collection of German dinosaur fossils. The Dippy Molds got so much use that they began to disintegrate. In 1952, the museum used them to make one last cast before retiring them for good. It went to the Utah Fieldhouse Museum in Vernal, Utah. That mount has actually been taken down since, but it was used to make several new incarnations over the decades. And so, the cycle continues. As for the original Dippy, the Carnegie Museum was finally able to construct a wing for it and mount it in 1907. A Diplodocus skeleton contains 292 bones with a 22-foot neck and a 50-foot tail. And since these fossils were no casts, 
the petrified bones weighed tons. The scale of the animal was unprecedented. Kakishal had to invent a steel framework just to hold the vertebrae alone. The structuring was used in future sauropod mounts, and museums everywhere still use Kagashal's system even now. Contemporary paleontologists reviewing the make and casting of the Carnegie specimen agree Wharton and Kagashal did superb work, the best in the world for its time. All Andrew Carnegie ever wanted was to create some lasting positive change and thanks to World War I, he died convinced he had failed. If he had lived just a little bit longer though, he might have come to recognize Dippy as clear evidence to the contrary. You see, he changed the face of dinosaur science and popular culture with one simple revolutionary act. Sharing. Museums weren't in the practice of giving up their dinosaur secrets at the turn of the century, but because Carnegie was willing to send his Diplodocus anywhere in the world, if he was asked nicely, and because his crew did such meticulous work in crafting the casts, Diplodocus has become the most well-documented dinosaur of all time. The identical bones allowed international scientists to compare notes from different hemispheres, not just on Diplodocus itself, but between Diplodocus and their own local sauropods. The Dippycasts aided in tracking regional evolutions and adaptations on a whole new level. The value was so obvious after the fact that it started a practice among museums of sharing specimen casts rather than keeping them under lock and key, all thanks to Carnegie's generosity. But while the scientific benefits can't be overstated, the cultural impact was even more prodigious. All those museums that got cast copies jumped at the chance to put them on display. People around the world could view dinosaurs in picture books and movies, but this was the first time a dinosaur had physically come to them. As such, Diplodocus carnegii was the first dinosaur to be seen by millions of people. The British Dippy alone is estimated to have been seen by 90 million people since its 1905 debut. Diplodocus became a global household name by 1913. The colossal stranger inspired new generations of paleontologists in 11 different countries, some of whom had never before had the opportunity to stand in the shadow of a terrible lizard. But more than that, it taught the whole world the meaning of the word dinosaur. Thanks to the many replicas of Dippy still on display around the world, updated for the times, of course, dinosaurs won't be losing that momentum anytime soon. But the original set of fossils, the ones that started with a magazine illustration and a toe, sticking out of the ground? Those are still around too. 
You can find Andrew Carnegie's Diplodocus at his museum in Pittsburgh. An old sentry with a tiny head and a mountainous body, quietly safeguarding the dreams of a man who just wanted to build some good into the world. The theme song for Museum of Natural Mystery was created by Michael Guy Bowman. To discover more of his work, visit bowman.bandcamp.com. Museum of Natural Mystery is part of the Palmcast Network for Pomegranate Magazine. Don't forget to visit pommag.com, that's P-O-M-E-M-A-G.com, for a closer look at Andrew Carnegie's Dinosaur. I'll put up a companion post with images of the original mounts, Hatcher's reconstruction, and a still of the Brontosaurus illustration from the New York Life article. And we've made it to the end of season two. I guess this is goodbye, listeners. For now, at least. I want to let you all know that I'm going on hiatus for a bit. Not forever, but... It'll probably be a minute. I've got another project I'm hoping to get off the ground, and it's one that means a lot to me, so I really want to take some time to try and get it right. I'm not ready to drop any details quite yet, but I will say, it'll be a work of spooky fiction, so with any luck, maybe I'll have a preview I can show you soon. Fingers crossed. We'll see how it goes. If things shake out smoothly, I'll drop something in the feed about it soon. If things are bumpy, well, then maybe I'll be back for season three sooner rather than later. But don't think I'm going away completely. I will still be posting many episodes between now and then, and Nat Mystery Cast's birthday is next month, so we wouldn't want to miss that, would we? All of this is to say, stay tuned, and don't forget to subscribe. That way you don't miss out on those shorts and announcements. You can find me on SoundCloud and on iTunes, and of course, you can always catch me on Twitter at at NatMysteryCast, or email me at NatMysteryPodcast at gmail.com. I'm signing off for now, listeners, but before I go, I just want you all to know that I love you very, very much, with all of my heart. Until next time, I'm Emery Coolcats. Thanks for listening.